Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. So social media platforms are growing worldwide. Facebook is the top platform uh, globally, followed by YouTube and WhatsApp. Here in the United States, the most commonly used platform is YouTube, followed by Facebook and Instagram. So uh, just as a quick summary, uh, YouTube is the most popular social platform in the US. It's widely used for video sharing. Uh, what many people may not realize is there is this interactive capacity on YouTube uh, through engagement with the videos as well as comments. Facebook is the most popular platform globally, as we mentioned, but second in the US. There are many patient and professional groups on Facebook. So it is important to know about in terms of patient care. Twitter is the platform that is most widely used by healthcare professionals and important for interprofessional contact. So a lot of the slides will address that. Um, Instagram is certainly a growing platform to share visual and video content. There are some healthcare professionals using it, particularly in fields with a lot of visual content. LinkedIn is a good social platform for professional use. Uh, I think it is important for everyone to have a LinkedIn profile. It's just another good place to house content about your career. Uh, and it does rank highly in search engines. So any of these things, it's best to have your own content uh, come to the top of the search. There are some other public facing social media platforms, however, not yet being widely used in urology, such as Snapchat, Pinterest, TikTok, etc. cetera. Uh, there are also some dedicated social media platforms specifically for healthcare professionals. One of these is Doximity. Uh, this is where healthcare providers can create a profile and use this for networking. It has some helpful features such as a CME tracker, uh, secure phone and fax applications. I personally primarily use it for the phone application. I use it to call patients from home all the time and it shows my office phone number. So useful app to have. They also are linked in with the US News and World Report surveys. So uh, most urologists do join this and participate. CERMO is another social network for physicians. This one is a little bit different. They have um, medical news as well, but they also have case discussions, polls, and some opportunities to do surveys. So some benefits to social media and urology include advertising, whether it's advertising yourself, your practice, events that you're participating in, publications. Uh, it's a good way to get any of this information out there. These networks are useful for awareness and advocacy, whatever it might be. Uh, I just completed a fundraiser. I'm pretty tired today because yesterday was Giving Tuesday. So I was finishing up a uh, social media campaign through Instagram to raise money for some animal rescues. So 
it was a big day for Giving Tuesday, but we got uh, over $4,500 raised, so that was great. Um, also good for clinical care. There's a lot of case discussions through social media. Uh, it's great for medical education. News, um, I pretty much get my news mostly from social media. Uh, even these days, it seems like if you watch TV, often they're showing you know, what somebody tweeted as part of the news. So you can actually just sort of go to the source and read it and see what people said about it yourself, which is really pretty interesting. Um, also, these networks are very useful for patient education and support. Many different social media platforms have um, options for this. Very good for professional networking. Um, I've probably met some of the people on this call through uh, various social networks. So I can say personally, I've met a whole host of new professional colleagues and friends through these platforms and I'm very grateful for that. And research, uh, whether it is patient recruitment, uh, physician recruitment to take surveys, there's a lot of that going on on social media or even using uh, social media data as the uh, data source for the research itself. So starting in with advertising and promoting your practice, uh, you know, no matter what type of practice you have, uh, it's good to have pages on these different social networks that showcase you know, what you're doing in your practice. So I think this is something for any of the trainees to consider um, once you graduate. Um, these uh, networks are associated with reputation. This is a study that we did looking at US News and World Report scores for urology departments, the reputation scores, and they were uh, significantly associated with Twitter followers and tweets. Uh, now, I'm not saying this is a causative uh, relationship. So, you know, it's possible that the places that had a better reputation otherwise uh, then received more followers. Um, but nevertheless, there's certainly a positive relationship. And it would make sense that if you're putting out content discussing the good things that are happening in your department, that that would help with reputation. So, I don't see a, a real downside to getting involved. On an individual level, uh, these things can even be important now for academic enhancement. In fact, some institutions are even um, specifically including social media scholarship activities in uh, promotions and academic enhancement. So I think if you are doing significant activities in the digital realm, uh, you know, such as creating a special community for patients or a certain patient education campaign or whatever it may be that it is uh, something that should go on your CV as uh, one of your contributions to the field. And also there are altmetrics, uh, which are sort of a different type of metric showing um, how far research has reached. So these are sort of a nice complement to traditional citation metrics, like somebody's H index or um, something like that, where these show the number of times that 
the paper has been mentioned in different types of social media and in the media. And that's important too, because we all want the work that we do to be widely disseminated. So having it mentioned in these other places is also very important to make sure that the research reaches the target population. As I mentioned, these platforms are also really good for raising awareness. Uh, these are some posts from Facebook and Instagram uh, with you know, important messages about cancer awareness or about uh, quitting smoking due to the relationship between ED. And you, know, you can see some of these images are very eye-catching. So this can be a good way to get people's attention uh, even about something where they may not have been aware of the association. I think we could do a better job though, especially raising the profile of men's health. This study, uh, we looked at Twitter activity for prostate versus breast cancer and uh, breast cancer really blows prostate cancer away. They are, uh, you know, probably five or 10 years ahead of us in research and also in social media. So there's just uh, a huge volume of activity, especially for breast cancer survivors on social media. And it really um, is a much greater extent than prostate cancer, but both have been growing by more than 100% per year. So I think, you know, the time is coming. This is just comparing specifically tweets about breast cancer, which are shown in pink versus prostate cancer during uh, the awareness months. So September is prostate cancer awareness month. October is breast cancer awareness month. You can see it has a huge peak for the pink bars in October. And then November is Movember, which is a men's health campaign. Uh, but you could see that um, the bars for breast cancer are higher than prostate cancer every month, even during Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, it could be used for other types of advocacy. Uh, we started a hashtag, I look like a urologist back in August, 2015. At that time, there were a bunch of uh, hashtag, I look like a campaigns being started, such as I look like an engineer and I look like a surgeon. We did recently just publish the four year experience of hashtag I look like a urologist and found that it has continued to be widely used to discuss uh, diversity and inclusion in urology. This slide just shows some representative tweets uh, discussing some of the topics that have been raised through this hashtag. Uh, for example, um, mantles or panels at conferences where all of the participants are men is a common topic that can get called out on social media. Uh, there's a, all other tweets on here regarding issues like uh, breastfeeding and how to handle that at urology conferences if uh, babies are not allowed into the meeting. Uh, also discussions about uh, including um, inclusion of underrepresented minorities and the number of women in the field, uh, as well as some opportunities. You can see a tweet here 
with a funding opportunity specifically for female urologists through the Society of Women in Urology. So um, this has been, you know, used pretty widely. And I think that these networks are a good place to raise awareness and evoke change uh, for things that are, um, you know, not equitable or uh, fair in the field. Clinical care is another good use of social media, whether it's for crowdsourcing with your colleagues, uh, case discussions, or dissemination of clinical guidelines. This is a case report that we published uh, of urologists using Twitter for crowdsourcing about complex management issues. Kevin Sternberg actually got consent from the patient in question who had a complicated endourology problem to post the images to Twitter and had a lively discussion with urologists from around the world on um, different approaches to manage the issue, which actually did lead to changes in management. So there have been many, many examples of this, whether it's for interpretation of test results or what your colleagues would do with a specific cancer case, questions about surgical technique, instrumentation, uh, you name it. You know, so instead of just calling your former mentor, you can actually get advice from the world, but it is important not to share any confidential patient information. Um, and if there's anything that even could be remotely identifiable, getting from the patient is always a good idea. So here's some examples of crowdsourcing. Both of these cases actually use polls, which is a nice feature on Twitter. Uh, for example, in the left side here, uh, this is a case of a patient in their 50s uh, with you know, various findings in terms of PSA and MRI. So the question is whether people would follow with PSA, repeat the MRI or biopsy now. Uh, the second question, you know, similarly, you know, another case history and would you observe biopsy or do excision? So I think these are helpful and certainly foster a lot of interesting discussion uh, between colleagues. Uh, this was kind of formalized by the hashtag EuroSOMI, which was introduced uh, by Jeremy Tio and the EuroSOMI working group back in December of 2018. You can use this hashtag for urological discussions like this. They actually have uh, live case discussions frequently discussing uh, different urology cases and getting global perspectives. And this uh, hashtag and this group has fostered uh, many successful research collaborations as well. So uh, I think it just shows how these communities are a nice way to bring uh, urologists together discussing common topics um, and also getting to know each other and even forming new research teams remotely. There's also crowdsourcing going on on other social networks. Uh, for example, this is the uh, female urologists uh, Facebook group. And there's a lot of uh, discussions going on there in terms of, you know, different 
case scenarios and um, what what would other people do or you know is there an insurance problem there's been a lot of discussions in some of these Facebook groups about uh, what to do during COVID in terms of PPE or resuming different surgical procedures so um, this is an, a, yet another place to engage with colleagues most of these groups are private so you have to answer some questions uh, indicating that you're a urologist in order to join. And uh, that way, you know, the information is only being shared among the group. There's also clinical case discussions happening on Instagram, especially in fields where there's visual materials uh, like radiology or pathology where people will show uh, interesting images or interesting slides on Instagram and discuss what they're seeing. There's a number of blog forums as well. This one that I'm showing here is the AUA Young Urologists Online Community. And this one has a very active discussion group similar to the Facebook group that I showed you. There's also been a lot of back and forth in this one about management during COVID. Um, for example, this thread is discussing acute stone management and, um, you know, um, what about doing nephrostomy instead of stent placement uh, during the pandemic to reduce the amount of PPE and aerosolization. So there's been a lot of discussion back and forth. As I mentioned, these networks are also helpful places to disseminate guidelines. Uh, this is a, a project that I had uh, the pleasure of participating in starting in about 2014, where uh, our task force, who's shown in the picture up above, was commissioned to convert the EAU guidelines into tweets. Uh, which, you know, were even shorter back then than they are now. So we really had to come up with what is the sound bite from uh, each of the EAU guidelines um, and then run them by the guidelines panel for public dissemination. So these have been disseminated through Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Uh, it was a really successful activity. Uh, we published um, even just the initial 18 months of the experience and the reach just on Twitter alone was more than 9 million, not counting the other platforms. And, you know, this also um, is a good point to segue into the two-way nature of social media. So in addition to disseminating this information, which is very important, um, because it's a social network, you can also leverage that to get feedback. So in the second phase of this project, what we started doing is issuing a series of polls. We asked people, are you doing X, Y, Z, something that's indicated in the guidelines? Now, obviously this is not you know, high level research. There's definitely sampling error and a biased participation if you conduct a poll on social media. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, it's, it's totally free. It's uh, very quick to do and you can get some data back quickly. So what we saw in these polls is that there were certain guidelines where 
even 19% of people responding were, were uh, following the guideline. So, and there are others where nearly everybody was following the guideline. So even though it's just one small sample of people who are active on social media, who are engaging in it, it gives some level of feedback as to areas where we should focus more in our social media campaigns in terms of education. So we fed that information back to each of the guidelines panels uh, to the extent that it could help them determine where they might want to focus more of their energies in terms of promotions. Resources for patients. Uh, lots of really useful stuff on social media for patients. Most people are getting health information online, according to the Pew Research Center, which amasses a lot of the statistics about social media use in the United States. 72% uh, of internet users, even back in 2012, were searching online for health information. And uh, many went online to find others who share their same health concerns. So if you look across different platforms, these are some examples from Twitter and Instagram uh, of you know, helpful infographics, giving um, tips to patients to reduce risks and also showing anatomy to patients. On Facebook, there's a large number of support groups for uh, various urologic conditions. Uh, shown here are um, specifically some groups for peyronies and erectile dysfunction. So for the 16% or maybe even more by now of individuals who want to find others who are experiencing the same issue as them, uh, there's a lot of these closed groups where you have to join the group in order to see the content and people can discuss things on there. There's a lot of these for uh, urologic cancers as well. There are also uh, dedicated online health communities. This one is called Inspire. They have more than 100 disease specific communities within their site. So uh, some of these include uh, urological conditions. For example, there's a very active forum for bladder cancer in collaboration with Beacon. There's also uh, prostate cancer community and uh, many others. And you can see, you know, people post on here um, issues about themselves or even their family member and are trying to get advice from other people or just support on how to manage this. Social media are interestingly also being used uh, for um, crowdfunding or raising funds by patients and their families. So this is a study where we looked at uh, a couple of the main crowdfunding platforms online and examined whether they were being used for prostate cancer and also how much uh, was the activity and the funds raised compared to breast cancer. So uh, similar to the Twitter data that I showed you earlier, there was a lot more uh, crowdfunding happening for breast versus prostate cancer. Uh, they were mostly um, being put up on these platforms by friends and family to help with uh, treatment costs. So just another example of uh, the evidence of financial toxicity of cancer uh, treatment in this country. 
and uh, we did find a greater amount of average funds raised in the breast cancer than the prostate cancer campaigns. These word clouds just show um, what were the most common words that were used in these profiles. Social media are also very useful for medical education. Certainly uh, all the big conferences have their own hashtag. This is the metrics from AUA 2019 meeting. You can see that there were more than 3,800 uh, unique participants who tweeted using the hashtag and more than 21,000 tweets. So I think during conferences, Twitter is the most important platform and uh, quite a large discussion and it reached a lot of people. So really important way of trying to disseminate knowledge in the field. Another use for education are Twitter-based journal clubs. So uh, everyone on here knows uh, that journal clubs are typically a group of individuals meeting in a room uh, on, let's say, a weekly to monthly basis. It's been around for 200 years. Um, however, only more recently have these things been taken online. So uh, 2008 was the first use of Twitter to document an in-person journal club, and 2011 was the first time that a journal club was completely conducted through Twitter, although that one is actually no longer active. So there's a bunch of these uh, that are relevant to urology, including pediatric urology. There's a nice one from Canada. Um, I have personally been involved in leading the Prostate Cancer Journal Club on Twitter. This it uses the hashtag ProstateJC Hashtags are used to index things like a search term. So JC stands for journal club. So hashtag prostate JC. If you search for that, you can find uh, the past discussions from this. So I started this with the Prostate Cancer Foundation back in February 2017. Uh, it's been active since then, except for it's on break right now because of the COVID pandemic. But will resume uh, when normal operations resume. And the goal is to discuss uh, the latest research in prostate cancer with a global multidisciplinary audience, including different specialties of physicians, as well as scientists, patients, and other stakeholders. So you can see in this way, it's different than a traditional journal club where, um, for example, in our Urology Journal Club at NYU, which I co-lead with Bobby Najari. It is uh, only NYU urology people who are in the room. In this case, you're able to discuss these things with not only urologists from other hospitals or other countries, but also other people who are involved in prostate cancer care, uh, radiation oncology, medical oncology, and patients can, can be involved, which is not the case for a traditional in-person journal club. So we did publish the first year of the experience of this in European urology. There were about 33 to 88 participants each month. Uh, there were 114 to 267 tweets, but it reached hundreds of thousands with the discussion. So hopefully was helpful in sharing evidence-based information about prostate cancer with a broader audience. 
Uh, most of the tweets were informational, you know, containing factual information rather than uh, just conversational. None of the tweets appear to have any commercial bias. And you can see on the right that um, while urology was the most common specialty that was represented, there was representation from several other medical disciplines, as well as 32% uh, who were not in medicine. So uh, engagement from different types of stakeholders, which is unique compared to an in-person journal club. Um, the contributors came from 15 different countries on four continents. So I think these types of discussions are definitely a really nice way to foster um, global discussions. Uh, social media are useful for other types of medical education activities. There's also um, different quizzes uh, showing, you know, um, transillumination of the scrotum, what, what is the diagnosis here, or showing different imaging findings and asking for the diagnosis. I think that these applications will continue to increase over time. Uh, it's just such a nice way to um, disseminate different educational initiatives. And it seems that um, urological trainees do find these platforms useful for education. This was a survey that was done in Europe on the perceived role of social media in education among young urologists, and they actually uh, ranked YouTube as a preferred tool for learning surgical technique ahead of websites and reference books. So, you know, if you have a good surgical video or, you know, good content, then put it out there so that everyone can learn from it. So that was YouTube. Twitter has also been shown to be useful for urologists. This is a survey that we did with Hendrik Borgman. Um, looking at people who participated in the Twitter feed during the 2014 EAU and AUA meetings, asking them how they perceive the utility of these platforms for various professional goals, whether it's networking, disseminating information, research, advocacy, career development. And, uh, you know, you can see that the majority found it useful for, you know, quite a number of important professional goals. So, uh, these are people who are who were using it, but you know if they I guess if they thought it wasn't useful, maybe they stopped using it. But uh, nevertheless, I agree. I think it can be helpful for any of these. Uh, there's opportunities for professional networking and other platforms as well. I mentioned the uh, women docs in urology Facebook. AUA Young Urologists Online Community. These are just a few of many different networks that I happen to have joined. Um, and this is a map of my Twitter followers, just to get a sense of, you know, how much this has helped me to meet new friends and colleagues from different parts of the world. And uh, this stuff really is global. And I, you know, I've just been really grateful for the opportunity to make so many new friends and research collaborators, some of whom I've never even met in person. Uh, that's a nice segue onto research. So, uh, of course, you know, all of this vast quantity of user-generated data can actually be used to 
uh, look at all kinds of things. This was an interesting analysis of uh, social media and showing how um, during the last election, uh, the sentiment towards Trump on social media was higher uh, throughout the campaign. So, um, you know, I think that uh, what's going on on social media does give you a sense of um, public perceptions of different things. We try to leverage this same type of analysis to look at sentiment towards prostate cancer uh, surrounding the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommendations uh, against PSA screening. And again, when they revise the recommendations to recommend shared decision-making about PSA screening. Um, so we did see, uh, you know, not that many tweets that actually shared an opinion one way or the other, but an increase in the number of anti-screening tweets over time. So if you do have a position on these topics, I think this is a good case of a missed opportunity for more advocacy and as physicians and uh, we should have a role in public health and helping to shape public opinion. Uh, social media data can be used for qualitative research as well. Um, I don't know how many of you have been engaged in qualitative research before. Most of the research that I did during uh, my residency and early in my career was always using databases or quantitative data and performing statistics. Qualitative research is uh, quite a nice uh, you know, branch of research instead using uh, words as the uh, metric of evaluation. Um, and that can be done using online data or uh, interviews or focus groups in person. So this is a study that we presented at the SMSNA meeting earlier this year, uh, looking at the concerns of female partners of prostate cancer patients using their own narratives that were posted to the Inspire online community. Uh, so we went through the posts of female partners and found a whole variety of different themes that they were expressing, uh, such as decisional regret over the treatment that had been received by their partner, grief over loss of intimacy, feelings of isolation and emotional stress, and uh, a lot of interesting and helpful comments about practical adjustments that they made for sexual activity, uh, like different types of condoms that they used to deal with climacteria or using a uh, mat underneath the sheets of the bed. So, um, you know, there's a lot of user generated content online and can we harness some of this information that people are readily sharing to learn more about the real world experience that's being faced by our patients and their families. Obviously, social media is a great place for research dissemination. In fact, this should really be the goal. Anything we do that we would wanna disseminate uh, as widely as possible so that the research has an impact. So, you know, regardless of which social platform, in fact, Ideally, it should be uh, publicized on every social platform that you have. If you are involved in a research activity, 
you know, you want to shout it from the treetops so that it actually makes a difference. So these are some nice examples of sharing research on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Uh, you can also share them through other networks, Instagram, particularly if there's some sort of visual content that you could show, such as a summary table, YouTube video. BJUI actually asks authors to provide short video segments about their studies. So it's just a nice way to uh, share your research in a different format that might reach a different audience than some of the other social platforms. Uh, there's also blogs where you can share research. This is the BJUI blog and uh, it's open for people to create posts. So you can write one about your own study or other studies or, you know, anything you like that's related to urology. This particular post uh, was about a randomized trial of robotic versus open prostatectomy and this blog uh, has had thousands of views, many, many detailed comments from key opinion leaders around the world. So I think that uh, these are another great method of research dissemination and have also been very interesting and informative for, for me to read and hear what other people think about new studies. So I definitely recommend considering sharing your work through any of these less traditional channels. Social media can also be used for research recruitment. And this can particularly be helpful when there's difficult to reach populations or even um, less common conditions where you may not have a huge volume of patients at your own site. This is an example of using an online community, the bladder extrophy community on Facebook uh, to send a follow-up survey to uh, extra fee patients. So I think that uh, these are nice ways to find a very targeted group of individuals uh, for survey research. It, they've also been used to um, get samples from patients. I saw a really interesting AUA abstract about using social media to get samples from individuals, you know, widely geographically distributed individuals with interstitial cystitis. Um, so that they uh, had never been able to get enough samples in person and then, uh, you know, by posting it on social media, we're able to get a lot. Um, potential harms of social media. So we just finished going over all the awesome things that are on there for you and your patients, but we should spend a few minutes talking about the, the downside. Certainly, uh, there's potential for overuse of social media. So uh, there's been all kinds of research linking different social networks to relationship issues, depression, anxiety, uh, even issues with body image, especially with um, Instagram and some of the more visual platforms. Um, also been research on relationship between social media use with poor sleep quality, particularly if you're using these platforms late at night, like I did yesterday. <laughs> um, another issue are orthopedic issues related to constantly looking down at our phone and uh, this idea of text neck. So I don't know if we're all going to be 
you know, hunched over in 50 years, but we should try to be mindful of our posture and not spending our whole life looking down at the phone. There's also even been uh, many reports of deaths uh, taking selfies um, due to various reasons, uh, animals drowning, fall, fires. So, um, you know, I've even seen urologists at conferences who have been injured and bleeding because they were using their Twitter and walked into a poll. So, you know, just be careful. It's, it's not worth dying for the picture. There have been instances of unprofessional behavior on social media. There's a couple of publications where uh, Dr. Koo and colleagues looked at Facebook pages that were publicly discoverable from uh, urology residents and uh, graduates one year after graduating residency just to see if any of the pictures had anything that might be potentially viewed as unprofessional, such as profanity and appearing intoxicated or even having um, drugs or uh, protected health information, anything like that. So I would say, you know, it's very uh, important to be cautious about what is posted online and what other people can see. This is a recent study uh, by Justin Dubin uh, looking at urologists and what are some of the negative drawbacks that they've had from social media use. Uh, very few met validated criteria for social media addiction. However, uh, they have reported a variety of other negative repercussions. Some felt that they had been harassed by other physicians on social media. So. You know, definitely social media bullying is a big problem in the world. And it's unfortunate to hear that urologists feel that this has happened to them, but we should try to be kind and professional with each other, even if we have a, a disagreement over something. Um, also, very few disclose conflicts of interest on social media platforms. So it's important to keep that in mind. Now, it would be really difficult to do that in a lot of cases especially if something like Twitter where the bio is very short. But I think this is something that you always should consider at the back of your mind when reading posts. And some had concerns about social media worsening the doctor-patient relationship. Uh, this is more on this conflict of interest topic. This is not urologists, but this was a study of hematologists, oncologists, and many of their tweets do mention commercial products or services. And most of them, most of the tweeters do have at least one financial conflict of interest. So it's, this study did not clarify to what extent the conflicts of interest are disclosed or may have even interfered with the quality of the post, but it is just an issue that we should be aware of. And there is just frank misinformation on social networks. This is a YouTube video that is promoting Chinese herbal injections into the prostate to treat prostate cancer. We all know that this is not evidence-based or a guideline concordant, but this has had several hundred thousand views. So it's very important for us to be aware that this is the kind of material that our patients are seeing and 
largely there is nobody chaperoning whatever the user generated content is that goes up on these platforms. We did a study of this uh, about a year ago, looking at the first 150 YouTube videos about prostate cancer. We found that 77% contained poor quality, potentially misinformative or biased content in either the video or the comments underneath it. And that the videos that had some of this had 6.3 million total views. Uh, even more concerning is that the worst quality of the video was associated with more views and more thumbs up. So everybody likes the idea that, you know, an herbal remedy could provide a miracle cure for prostate cancer, but unfortunately, uh, these things don't exist. This is a recent review article that we just published summarizing the spread of information, misinformation about um, different types of urological conditions on social media. And uh, this is not uh, exclusive to prostate cancer. There is a lot of, um, you know, poor quality content on multiple different social media platforms about various different topics. A lot of uh, commercial content about incontinence, uh, some of the surgical videos don't show all the steps of the procedure and mystical stuff, which is important if you're using this to learn about surgical technique. Um, and, you know, videos about kidney stones also contain false or misleading information. Some of the videos about infertility, um, they, if there was a successful outcome where they were able to have a baby, those videos got more viewer engagement. So the concern with that is, you know, people like a happy ending, but it may not be realistic for everybody. Um, this is our AUA abstract that I won't get to present, I guess. So uh, here you go. This is um, looking at whether we might have some kind of automated solution for this in the future. So we used 354 publications about prostate cancer in PubMed Central to build a prostate cancer language model and compare the language to 250 YouTube video transcripts about prostate cancer. Then we use machine learning to try to differentiate trustworthy versus misinformative videos. We found the perplexity or the fit of the language was closer for the trustworthy videos to the PubMed Central articles compared to the misinformative videos. And we created a model using different features of the video to try to predict misinformation. And our combined preliminary model with acoustic data, metadata, and linguistic data had an accuracy of 74%. So maybe in the future, uh, machine learning may provide a scalable solution to at least assist health consumers to identify trustworthy videos. So I'll end with tips. Uh, it is great to be a part of these platforms, but we don't wanna be a Kardashian. This is a scientific publication. So the Kardashian index is the relationship between social media presence on the y-axis versus scientific contribution. So you don't want to be uh, all social media with no contribution. Also, you don't want to have a great scientific contribution, but be just sitting in a bubble and not share it with the world. 
So the sweet spot is to have high scientific contribution with a high social media presence. There are uh, several social media best practice policies in urology. Everyone should read these and become familiar with them. Jake Taylor from NYU did a nice job on summarizing these guidelines. So you can also look up this article, which summarizes the important content from each of the three main guidelines for professional social media in urology. I like to ask myself two questions before posting. Is it okay if this is on the front page of the New York Times? And does someone in Australia care about this? So I think it's important to try to be parsimonious and make sure that nothing in there is gonna cause you a problem later. And then in terms of what makes tweets most successful in urology, uh, we have some nice original data on this, uh, spearheaded by Jeremy Teo showing that if you do use more words, mention other people, include photos, and engage with others, those are some tips that are associated with greater engagement. So be parsimonious, but be friendly and engage with others. In conclusion, there is definitely quite a lot of social media going on in urology. Lots of really important benefits, both for healthcare professionals and for patients. However, there are potential drawbacks. It's really important that all of you are uh, familiar with the professional social media guidelines and that we direct our patients to high quality online resources so that they are not susceptible to these sources of misinformation. So I wanna thank uh, everyone who I've worked with on these different social media projects. If anyone would like to reach out, you can find me on Twitter and uh, I'll leave off there, Case, for a few minutes of questions. Dr. Loeb, that was an awesome presentation. Thank you so much. You covered so many great points, and um, I hope that uh, your talk gets more people involved in Twitter. I know it's uh, become really important for me, and I've learned a ton uh, from uh, my new friends on Twitter. Um, there are a few questions here in the chat. Um, uh, we have one from Bofeng Chen, who from social media, I just learned is a medical student at uh, University of Pennsylvania. He asked how much uh, of a role does social media play into the residency application process for medical students? And with the uncertainty regarding the upcoming application cycle and possible cancellation of away rotations, can medical, how can medical students utilize social media to express interest toward various programs? And maybe should they? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think it's really important for medical students to get involved and I think it's a great way to become known by faculty at the programs that you're considering. Uh, you know, there's definitely medical students who have come through our interviews who I remember meeting on social media. Um, I've gotten to know medical students even in other countries because they were actively participating in these discussions and, you know, um, I'm not sure how I would have really met them in any other way. So I think it's a nice way to, you know, if you have something to contribute, especially like in getting involved in one of these journal clubs or starting to share urology articles that you think are interesting with some commentary about it, um, you know, engaging with uh, other people's posts. If there's faculty at institutions where you're applying, you know, um, comment on their posts you know, share their work and tag them. I think uh, 
you can definitely start engaging with them so that you're on their radar and it shows a lot of interest in um, being a part of the urologic community. Uh, from a program perspective and maybe from an attending perspective too, um, how do you plan to use social media during this upcoming urology match cycle to um, you know, promote your program and try to recruit young urologists? I mean, I think um, a lot of programs already have active presence on social media, sharing, you know, what's happening with the department and what the faculty and residents are doing in the program. So I think that these are very important, especially now for people to see more of what's happening. I've even gotten two messages from people who started uh, accounts because of the pandemic and just trying to get more information out there for potential applicants. So yeah, I think it's a good place to try to see a bit of what's going on and you can certainly ask questions. Uh, that's great, thanks. Um, I think we have time for one more question. Uh, Dr. Botolato asked, um, when posting case presentations, um, I've heard of a lot of horror stories of people getting in trouble for sharing things, even if it's not explicit, you know, protected health information. Um, so Dr. Botolato asked, um, how do you avoid pitfalls in patient privacy when sharing cases online? Well, I think it's always best not to use any kind of timestamp that, cause that could be a potential identifier. So, uh, you know, you don't want to say like the case that I did today, for example, because then a family member or the patient who was involved in one of your cases that they could identify themselves. So I think it's best to not use any sort of um, time involved in when this is occurring or when you saw the person. I've seen some um, images posted on social media where the patient's name had not been removed and that's an absolute no-no. I mean, honestly, the safest approach is to get consent from the patient if you do plan to share something. I do not post anything from inside an operating room or an ER bay, any kind of photo that might have um, identifiable stuff in the background is a bad idea. So I would try to limit content to stuff that's in the public domain. If you're presenting at a conference, I mean, it's an open forum, things like that are, are absolutely fine. You know, take a picture with your colleagues and the hospital lobby instead of in the operating room. 